my high school years, I struggled to fit in. I, I uh, was ostracized from the marching band. I had a, I had a friend called Fetus. <laughs> Popularity-wise, um, like a scale one to 10, um, I was like a two. But on Saturday night in the company I kept, I was definitely a 10 out of 10. Every Saturday night I spent with my grandmother and my great aunt. We'd, uh, we'd go out to eat and then drive around, watch TV. W-A-L-T, It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Earthworks Ethos via the Sound Devices Mix Pre-6. Analog tones, very simple setup today because I have been thinking recently because of the guest on the show today about how easy it is to let various... Elements in the signal chain interfere with the signal that you're trying to send. What do I mean by that? Well, on the show today, it's Adam Wade. Adam Wade is one of the best-known storytellers at The Moth. He has been telling true stories from his life on stage in New York City for a really, really long time. He's won the moth something like 20 times, probably even more than that. And when I first discovered the moth and started wanting to tell true stories of my own on stage in front of an audience, Adam was one of the people that inspired me the most. And the reason he inspired me the most is because he is a performer unlike anybody else you've ever seen. I guarantee it. He is so remarkably within himself. And and I don't mean that he his performance is small. I mean that he embodies himself so completely to the point that that sometimes when he's in the middle of a line in one of his stories, the emotion of that line catches him to the point that you're fleetingly worried he's not going to be able to complete the line that that he might be overtaken by the emotion, but because he is such a skilled performer, he doesn't get stuck in that moment. He allows it to happen and then pushes through it to the next moment of the story that is all the more rewarding because you watched him persevere through that that emotional catch. And that is not a trivial or simple thing to do, especially when you're telling a remarkably sensitive story from your own life. I mean, Adam's stories are full of heartbreak and betrayal and mistreatment, uh, a lot of it from when he was a kid, and people took advantage of his good nature and goodwill. And he tells stories about only really feeling comfortable for many years hanging out with his grandmother and his great-aunt. Those are hard things. And... A lesser performer in the moment of talking about them would ask for your sympathy. But 
Adam doesn't do that. It's like he re-experiences it in front of you and then in the process of making narrative out it, narrative out of it, transcends it somehow. It's just spectacular to watch. And I would very much recommend, uh, if you have Audible, that you listen to his Audible original. It's called You Ought to Know Adam Wade. It's a whole series of these stories threaded together uh, into a memoir of sorts. Um, and he has comedy albums that you can find on Apple Music and Spotify. But the thing that I didn't know about him before we had this conversation is that a lot of his ability to do this extraordinary type of performance comes from the fact that he also did college radio. And you'll hear him talk about that a lot in the interview, so I I don't want to give too much of it away, but what I want to say about that discovery for myself is that, you know, you have, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, and thank you if you have, you have heard me approach this part of it, the part of it that you're listening to right now, in a variety of different ways, some of those more scripted than others, sometimes talking about myself, sometimes talking about the guest. And what I am trying to figure out, as you're listening to these words right now, is a way to get back to what it felt like to do college radio, where there was something about sitting in the cloistered sanctuary of a radio studio knowing that what you were broadcasting was going out into untold numbers of ears that made you feel accountable. And I'm not saying this is how Adam felt. I'm just speaking for myself. It made you feel accountable to yourself and to the people that may or may not be listening that it sh- that what you were saying shouldn't be planned in this way that gives the lie to the fact that it's being broadcast live, but rather it just should be an accurate reflection of you sitting with yourself in that moment and and that that could be enough and that the act of trusting that is not self-indulgent or narcissistic, but rather a way of being present with the person who is sitting listening to the radio, also just trying to be okay with themselves as they are in that moment of sitting there. Is this making sense? Because I don't think I'm going to edit this out. <laughs> because it, it's, it's a difficult feeling to describe. But it is such a powerful feeling. And it is a difficult feeling also to recapture sitting in a small self-constructed podcast studio where you can do 300 takes of an intro so that it conveys something specific. But I I don't think I'm going to change this intro because I feel like what I'm chasing in this memory is not specific. It is grand and amorphous and profound in this way. And and I'm not saying that that you're listening to it and thinking, "Well, wow, Sam's really profound." That's not what I mean. What I mean is there is a connection between Adam's ability to be himself so completely on stage and what I remember of the radio studio as a space that conjures that sensibility in the self. And it is 
the reunion between those impulses. Because obviously when you perform a story on stage, you have prepared it. And you are trying to talk about something very specific and, and cultivate a very specific narrative. But you want that performance to be informed by a willingness to sit in the mystery of the enclosed room with a microphone connected to the universe and the lack of definition about what that moment is. You want the the end state of telling the story to be informed by a communion with that surrender. And I did not, tell me if you're surprised, think about any of this until I sat down just now and started talking about it. But it is one of the many memories that talking to Adam Wade made me think about. And I feel pretty confident that as you listen to him, you will be reminded of a lot of stirring memories yourself because that's what Adam's work does is connect us with the truest parts of ourself and not the ones we always like to show to people so much, but the ones that are undeniably and eternally us. So here's my conversation with comedian and storyteller Adam Wade on WALT. Adam Wade, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Great to be here, Sam. So the way I uh, always like to start is to ask, if you think about this phrase, The Midnight Disease, and you apply it to your creative process, it doesn't have to literally be midnight, but um, if you think about yourself in the throes of The Midnight Disease, whatever that means to you, can you paint us a picture of what that looks like? Yeah, I, I have set up pretty, um, this is going to be a huge breaking news here out of your podcast, but I'll, I'll floss my teeth and brush my teeth. <laughs> I, I floss every night. So that okay. we can use that as a quote. Controversial, uh, controversial. <laughs> and my brain's going and, and it's been very, very helpful to me actually. So, uh, and then I usually like, I'll either like lay on my couch for like 15 minutes um, or in my bed for 15 minutes. But uh, I, I, it's not to sleep. It's just to, to just kind of think. I'm just kind of going over things, whether it's stories I'm working on, whether it, mm-hmm. it's just re- relaying the day. What it's like if I'm if I'm going through something, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, with family or friends or romantically. Uh, and then from there, uh, I'm usually putting some things to paper. I'd say about two pages at night. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so here's my, I do a similar thing. I, I have this rut- ritual, I suppose, that I call night pages, where um, I think of it as sort of an emptying out, um, like letting everything that's stuck in the funnel run out through the pen onto the page. But then I have a sort of an unofficial policy with what I write during that time that I don't ever really go back and look at it again. It's not really what it's for. It's It's more to make it so that when I wake up the next day, I've got a clean antenna. This stuff that you're writing at night, are you going to then go back to it? Let's say you are working on a new story to perform. Are you then going to go back to it and say like, what was that thing I was thinking about last night? Or do you use it? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I'll I'll definitely look back at it. Um, I I mean, I, and you know, I do the morning pages 
every morning there's three full pages and the last page and a half is always the hardest, but I, I, I get it out. Uh-huh. And that's, yeah. that's stuff I mainly say, I'm like, I'll never, I'll, I'll, I, I just need to get it out. Sometimes though, if it's like, I, I do write it with a high, not with a highlighter, but the highlighter near there. And sometimes I'm like, you know what, that go back to that. Um, and a okay. few times, but I'm not relying on that. Um, at night, it's going to sound crazy, but it's like meditative for me just to kind of like go over something. And then by doing that, especially late at night, I do get pretty good, pretty good amount of breakthroughs with with that. So, um, yeah. That doesn't sound crazy to me at all. And just to kind of join you there, um, I often think to myself, uh, I don't often say it out loud, but I guess I will now. Um, I feel like for me, Night Pages is the closest thing I've ever had to prayer, Um, which is not to say that I consider it religious necessarily, but just in the sense that I notice that I am a version of myself that I like more and am a creative person more in the mold of the creative person I think I would like to be when I am doing this ritual. Um, so that if I can keep the practice, even if, you know, as we're saying, you're not necessarily getting some specific great, you know, page and a half of writing out of it that then becomes a, a part of a story that you literally do. It's not direct like that, but it's it's staying in touch with something. It's communing with with something. And, and, and just know, too, um, some of these things, especially when I think they're great ideas, I mean, I do look at them in the morning and like, what, what is like, what is that? You know, I mean, I try to write legibly, and but I mean, you know, also, I mean, I, I like the batting average of it's probably like 200, maybe like 180. Right. You know, right, right. What, so it's not like, oh, wow, he comes up a lot. But I mean, you know, sometimes the, they're really good. But, but like sometimes it's just like you're reading it and you're like, all right, I'm glad you thought of that. Maybe put it in your folder <laughs> or whatever, but I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why it's important to give yourself so many at-bats, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's why you got to keep doing it every night. Um, I, and I I need to write at least five five days a week I, or, you know, the morning pages every day and that's writing. So, I mean, I write every day. Yeah. You, you can't cram for me. I can't cram. And say, yeah. like, this is my deadline. I'll just wait till tomorrow and I'll do all the work. I'll, I'll write all day. You got to do the work. You got you to gotta actually put time into this stuff if you want to get really good at it. And, and that's in writing and storytelling and everything. Yeah. But, like, at night doing this, you, you have to do it. You have to. So when did you start? Because I'm, I'm very fascinated by there's a story at the very beginning of your Audible original. You ought to know Adam Wade. And you tell the baby lungs story. And one of the things I love about that story is it is such an early moment where you realize if I in the world say something that really happened in my own life, you're six at the time this happens, and a doctor tells you you have baby lungs. He means you have asthma, but he's trying to be funny. And you then are at the grocery store and you say baby lungs to people and it gets a reaction. And it struck me as like this very early signal to you, oh, if I talk about real things that happened in my life, people notice, they pay attention, they have a response. Am I interpreting your choice to open the special with that story correctly, that it was an early signal that if you can document 
things from your life in some way, it will connect with people? Yeah. And, and for, for me, what I like about it, and I appreciate it, I appreciate you commenting, commenting and listening um, sure. to, to the special. The, for me, I've always been interested in origins, you know, the origin of Batman, mm. you know, and, and people, whenever I say that, there'll always be someone like, what do you mean origin of Batman? I'm like, what? Like, so like the origin <laughs> of superheroes, um, I used to always love those, you know, the origin of Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe. That was like one of my first, like, favorite yeah. car, uh, comic books. So I, I love that type of thing. So I I, I really like in, in personalizing my life story and stories to stage. I think a lot of them are rooted in my origins, you know. So mm-hmm. so, so mm-hmm. starting like that was, was a purposeful mood. Um, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, you started on a downer there. I'm like, like, listen to the whole thing. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you, you have to start there. It, like, you, it, there, you got to start somewhere. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? So it's like, uh, you know, I kissed uh, Heather Locklear or whatever. I mean. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, yeah. no, like, like where, where's know. the special going to go if you started? I kissed Heather Locklear, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's, it's just like, oh, okay, well, that's good. Uh, now I like this guy. I mean, like, oh, <laughs> right. I, you know, just. Uh, Yeah. Well, so my question about this then is, um, when did you start? Because obviously when you're six years old, I assume you're not doing morning pages. You're not, you know, making a careful journal of of these experiences. But you are starting to notice that by sharing your experiences in some way, uh, it can eventually bear fruit. When did you start actually writing things down? When did you start actually keeping track of these experiences? Did that start at, like when you were still in school or did that come later when you found storytelling? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, college, I had a teacher, Craig Kellum, who would, um, he was a, he was like writing for Hollywood class. And I think it was my sophomore year. And I needed, I needed credits because I had dropped Spanish. I didn't need it. And I needed extra. So I I saw like writing for Hollywood and and I'm pretty sure like anybody could take it. And he was this gentleman um, who'd worked on like the TV show, the Munsters, like the the revamp in the eighties. I think Charles in charge, um, an FBI type show. And then he was also like an associate producer at like at the beginning for Saturday night live. And I thought like, I mean, and he was just, he liked, he really, really liked to talk about the business. And now he's like living in Vermont. You know, he was just kind of, he was done. I think he, you know, he, he was just kind of, and he was reading scripts and, and helping people with scripts. But he was just a very, very interesting guy. And he was a guy that liked to talk about the business. And I would ask him like a million questions about Saturday Night Live, about the Ruddles. He, he, he uh, was, I think, the executive producer of the Ruddles with Lauren Michaels. So he had all these stories. Uh, but in his class, he started us with the with the artist way and doing the morning pages. Okay. And that really kind of connected with things that I'd been doing in college the first like year and a half, which was mm-hmm. uh, I had a radio show and the radio yeah. show is a weekly radio show. So that helped me. I mean, once a week I was doing, you know, I don't want to say like open mic, but it was like I was doing two hours every week and I'm, I'm playing songs, but talking in between. So I was yeah. creating something once a week and I was, and I was writing all of this down and then I started taking film classes, like m- making movies and stuff. And the things 
gradually I found was the things that people found most interesting were actually my personal stories. If I try yes. to come up with stuff, they were like, eh. Yes. Well, I, one of, I heard you tell a story on Pete Holmes's podcast about how you would, and forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but it, that you would go to frat parties with your friends and... I mean, it's very endearing. Like, you guys would show up at, like, at 9.30 because that's when they said the parties were supposed to start, and then they'd be like, no, no, it doesn't start till midnight. Like, come back later, come back later. But you said that you would stay at the party until, like, 6 o'clock in the morning, Mm -hmm. just watching other people, like, get wasted, hook up, whatever the case may be, and that you would then go back to your dorm and write it all down. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then when you would do your radio show, you would tell the stories from that night. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that's really when I started, like actual journals, it was in college and it was just about the parties. I mean, I have those, like, I mean, I, I've scanned them, you know, I have them physically, but I also have them scanned and on Backblaze because I don't want to lose them. But, and, and, and what it is, it's like very sad. Like a lot of it's really sad. It's like, you know, the girl that you liked here, she, she made out with, with so-and-so this week or she made, uh-huh. and, but like, there's part of it that sounds very sad, but even at the time, I'd never really been to a lot of parties. I mean, I went to one in high school that I was thrown out of, you know? And so it was like, yeah. so having, being on the inside was really, really interesting. And, and then what, by doing all that, um, it connected to a lot of people that weren't going to frat parties. So they were living vicariously through me slash they were rooting for me. Like, you know, like Adam yeah. stop. like some people would say like, what are like, stop going to those parties. Like, like they're not good for you. And I'm like, Oh, well, what do you, no, they're not good for you. Like you deserve. And you know, you, you, it looking back now, reflecting, you can say, wow, they were right. And, I, and at the time I was like, Oh no, I like, I like going to these, but that wasn't like, it wasn't after a while. It wasn't like a healthy thing to be going to watch every, every girl you had a crush on make out with someone. Um, <laughs> right. But, yeah. but, but at, at the beginning, it was really, it was really, I love like the Inquirer and Star Magazine growing up. And this was almost uh, like me uh-huh. kind of playing like that, that, that journalist of, of the parties in a lot of ways. And I right. could, yeah, I, I, it, it, it was interesting. I mean, there were, and you know, we had nicknames and they weren't like bad nicknames and stuff like that. Like, so please. But then I had nicknames for every girl I had a crush on at these parties. So I would say, like, this is for uh, some mother hen. It was like an older girl. She it was, she was like the Belushi of, of the sororities. And she was at uh, from Animal House. And she was like, she had to be like 23, 24 years old. And she was still going to the parties. Um, uh-huh. and, and she was, you know, it, she was kind of tough looking. She wore like a leather jacket. Um, but I was like in love with her. And like my, my friends would laugh. They're like, what? And I'm like, I'm in, I'm in love with her. And they're like, yeah, yeah. she is like, she's like, I, I was what, 19, 18 going on. Like I looked like I was like 12 and she looked like she was like 40 years old, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and she had a smokers, well, but- smokers, you know, she talked, she talked like Marge Simpson's uh, sisters. You know what I mean? It was like very, very deep voice. Yeah. Well, the thing that, I, the thing that really jumped out at me when I heard you tell this story also is that, you said, you know, I, it's really, I'm, I had not heard the part of the story that you just mentioned, which is that other people would start to sort of live vicariously through you. But I also heard you say in the, the version of it you told on this other show that people 
not students, but like people who in the town of Keene, where you went to college, like the people who worked at the dining hall or like the people who worked at the pizza place, they would see you and they'd be like, great story, Wade. Like, I listened yeah, to yeah, the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what there was that? one thing, and I don't know, like there was, there was a girl that in my math for L ed class, because I went to school to be a math, one at the beginning to be a, a math teacher for elementary school. And there was like me and this girl, we were the two quietest kids in the class, you know, and, uh-huh. and like, uh, you know, and at every party she'd be making out with someone. And then I went on the radio and I just said, I go, you know, you're making out with a lot of guys. It's good. It's healthy. This is it's college. You're at a party. You're supposed to do that. But if you ever just want to go get like a milkshake or a uh, ginger ale or grapefruit juice, like call me. Like I, I'd love to take you out. I got flowers here in the, in the in, uh come to the station. I'll, I'll give you the, your flowers. And like that was like. I went right to the dining hall and the two elderly ladies making the sandwiches were like, did she, did she, did she come in? Like they all wanted to know the pizza parlor guy was like, did, and then they're like, oh, well too bad. She, you know, she, she, she doesn't deserve you, but they get very, um, very into it, very like almost like protective and supportive. So, uh, right. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it's, it strikes me that it, it's, it's, it's such an early signal for you that by, sharing the things that are most difficult for you to endure, you can actually find connection. Um, And I wonder, did you feel conscious of that at the time? Did you feel like something's changing here? Like I'm I'm finding connections that I... Because so many of your stories are about you know, feeling like you're kind of on the outside of things growing up, feeling like everybody else has it figured out, you don't have it figured out. Um, did you have a sense doing this show that that was starting to change or, or did that Absolutely. come later? Absolutely. You know, just, just, in my, just in my confidence, um, I did stop going to as many parties. I started doing open mics in college. Um, there was like, uh, I played musical comedy. I mean, that was like the next thing. I got a guitar and... Uh, you know, there was like off campus, there was like bands playing and there was like a, a ska band, a, a reggae band, a, you know, a, a, like a Grateful Dead-esque band. And they started having me open. And that, Sam, was the greatest thing because I don't know how talented the bands were. They were very nice guys. <laughs> but the great news is they were incredible promoters. They were such incredible. Like they would put, I mean, this was a small, Keene State College is like 3,000 people in the town, I think. But like everywhere there was flyers and my name would be on there. So like uh-huh. walking around and seeing my name everywhere and people yeah. like, what, Adam Open or Adam Wade? Like, is that a band? And I'm like, no, that I'm Adam Wade. I'm Adam fucking Wade. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just like, wow. Like it, it gave me a, a lot of confidence just seeing that. There, there were small things, but that was, that was, and you know, and they would play on a Saturday night and I would open. I would like literally have listened to the thing. Basically I was, they were doing the sound levels. That's why I was performing. And it was usually just to the bands and their girlfriends. And then after a while, and so, I mean, if it was like a nine o'clock show, I'd start like at about 8.30, 8.15. So there's like no one there. And then eventually, um, over, and this was like my junior and senior year, by like beginning to middle of my, my senior year, the crowds were bigger like when I started. You know, they would uh-huh. like, you know, I mean, the last show I did in Keene um, at, at that, it was 80 Roxbury, it was called, like, it was like, it was mobbed, like, uh-huh. when I performed and when I was done, half that crowd left and it made me They were me there feel, to see you. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it was like a really, you know, it was eye opening and, and exactly what I needed. And, you know, the, the week later, I'm moving to New York. But it was it yeah. was really uh, th- there, there was a lot there. there. There was a lot there for me. So when you're doing these these songs, what are the songs? Are the songs true stories told in song form? Yeah, m- most of them were true. I, I, I'd say more than half. Um, okay, they, they were terrible. They're very. Th- I, I shouldn't say they're terrible. I got to get better at that. But they weren't very good. I mean, I've listened <laughs> sure. to them. But I think yeah. for for the time and, and what where I was, I, I thought it was it was really really strong, and uh, it was me just talking about what we've been talking about. Just those yep. were like the best. Like uh, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, who later we found out is a uh, was a murdered a woman. Uh, but like I, I would talk about how I met him, and and, and I had a song Jimmy Superfly Snooker, and. Yeah, like you know, it was just a, like a, a, about my, my my heroes, and then I had a there was this was like in the late '90s, so there was actually computer labs on campus, and there was like a girl that ran the computer lab that had a, it was a lot of songs about having crushes on girls. So it was like the girl sure, from the sure. computer lab. Um, so just stuff like that. Um, I wanted to be in the circus. I talked about that. So I, and and the setup punchline whatever was much like the radio station carried over where I would build this thing up and then play a song uh, yeah. on, on the radio. So it'd be the same thing. And the song was usually short. It was like a minute or two long. Um, and, and then I would just play the song, but they were, they, I mean, they, they were catchy. I mean, you know, and, and what happened was the, uh, the members of the other bands wanted to cash in on Adam Wade. So uh, <laughs> they, like I would do a, and it was also like the Dylan's first bootleg that came out, like Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, he plays acoustic, and then he, I, I, I didn't know that, but I was in. I, I looking back, I, I, it, it, it was connected. Like I would do my own set with my my guitar, and then they would come on stage and they would play the bass. I mean, and, and the electric guitar and and the drums. So I had like the band after the Adam Wade experience. Like so, it was like we'd do like two sets, and it was like I mean, listening to those. I mean. Guess who's his biggest fan? Adam Wade. Adam Wade. I mean, I'd love to listen to those because it was like, oh my god! Like, I, I, like there's like a, I have like a backing band, you know? And, yeah. And like, it sounded pretty good. Like, I mean, for a college, I've heard right. a lot of college bands. Like, it, it was, it was pretty good. It was, it was. I mean, it was fun, you know. Wait. So, so let me just make sure I understand this. It starts off. You have prepared these little story songs that that you're going to do as an opening act. Eventually, they become so popular that the band who initially sees you as an opener realizes, oh, we want the crowd to stay. We got to bring Adam back later in the set and we'll back him up on his songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a moment. What a moment. Yeah, no, and it was fun. It, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, basically what they wanted too, which was very kind of them, Sam, is like they wanted me to be exposed to a larger audience. You know, yeah. So there, mm-hmm. so it was kindness on the, on their part too. But yeah, sure. Although I mean, you're helping. I mean, you're keeping their fans in the yeah, <laughs> the yeah, club. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, before we get too much farther ahead in the story, I want to go back to what you said about origins, because I hear you saying that you were always really interested in like superhero origin stories, this kind of thing. But something else that really jumped out at me again in I forget where I heard this. I think it was in your Audible original, is you talked about 
wanting to play the saxophone because you had seen the documentary Bird. And you no, it was, would a, it was the movie, uh, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, oh, the, okay. Yeah, yeah. The, yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. I'm sorry. Um, what connected with you about the story of Charlie Parker? Yeah, I, I mean, I remember vividly my father, for once in a while, my father and I would go to the movies and he's like, this this should be interesting. And um, I think he got the cassette, like bird motion soundtrack. Uh-huh. And I mean, it was like music. I mean, bebop. I mean, I, I just I'd never heard any type of music like that. And we went to the, the and it was just I, I just. I don't know, it was like part like on the road. Um, I mean, I was kind of young to know, like, you know, heroin and stuff like that. I knew something was going yeah. on. But, but, well, that's, um, that's part of what's interesting to me about this is, you know, he, you, you were saying that this was an influential movie for you entering high school. So I'm yeah. thinking, okay, that means that at the age of 13 or 14, you've already seen the incredibly harrowing story of Charlie Parker and thought, ah, there's something in this for Adam Wade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, it's true. I remember, like, uh, I mean, it, it's just, yeah. Um, but it had a huge impact on me. Uh, yeah, there was just a lot of it too, Sam. Uh, somewhat shy, and I always say like people are like like you put yourself in any situation at any age when you're in an environment where you're not comfortable, you're gonna be shy. So I mean, sometimes yeah. people are like, oh no, you were outgoing. Yeah, when I was with you. You know what I mean? Right. Or, or you know, right. I, I mean, I've right. talked to my, like, getting a little therapy on you. I mean, I've had conversations with my father, and he's like, I never saw it, Adam. I mean, I listen to your stories. I never saw it. I'm like, Dad, you were always giving me unconditional love. Of course you didn't yeah. see it. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I mean, when I was with my family, I was, like, the most confident person ever. Like, ever. Right. Like, right. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, with, with, with that movie, I, there was just something about it. Um, I mean, and a lot of it was Forrest Whitaker's portrayal. Uh I, I I just I, I and I love the music. It was all new to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been listening to like Van Halen, you know. So I mean, right. and there was just something magical and and being on the road and playing in front of an audience and mm. seeing how people reacted. Um, it, it just like the, it, and it just became more focused, maybe less on on Charlie Parker, but the saxophone. Like many things, you know, you you kind of romanticize how great this thing would be, and it, and it, yeah. it, it never it did not no. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. I mean, I love playing it. It just my my body physical <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, my body physically couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we started this by talking about uh the the baby lungs situation. Yeah, so the I can asthma, imagine the that. asthma. I mean, in, in you know, the within a month and a half, two months of starting the saxophone, I'm on a football f- uh, like a, a field in a park that's mimicking a high school football field and we got like poker chips. And we're trying to do a like a, do under the sea and the theme to Back to the Future. <laughs> like, I mean, it was like, how much can I do here? Like, I got to yeah. march yeah. in rhythm. I got to learn how to play this instrument that's not easy. And I mean, I play the drums, so there's no other. I didn't play the flute or play the clarinet. So it's like, right. how am I going to do all this? And then the and, and it's like, it's not the elementary school. It was like the number one marching band and and uh, orchestra band like in New Hampshire. So it's like, I mean, there's no. There's no way. Like, there's just no way. Yeah, yeah. But I'm glad we're talking about this because eventually you get kicked out of the marching band and you end up instead getting a job at a a restaurant as a Mm busboy. And 
Something that really sticks out to so then you 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 have all these amazing stories from that that job, um, and one of them is this story about this almost love affair that happens with uh, Susie who works there. I don't know if that was her real name, but um, and it really crystallizes for me this other I think critical part of the Adam Wade story, and I, I want to put this to you. One of the, my favorite parts of the stories you tell about Susie is you guys would have these amazing long sessions where you would talk out by the trash compactor behind the restaurant. Um, but one of the things you are careful to point out, and that's very funny in the, in the special, is you say it was mostly actually her just talking and you listening. Um, and that is a recurring theme across a lot of your stories is that you, are, you seem to be somebody who is very comfortable just sitting with people and listening while they talk. Is that something you were doing on purpose? Because it seems like at some point you figured out if you just sit and listen, people will tell you everything about themselves. Yeah, it's really like you're you're touching upon something that not too many people have have touched upon. I I appreciate it. Um, Spent a lot of time with my grandmother and my great aunt in their house. Mm-hmm. And they had a, a kitchen table. And the kitchen table um, was in the kitchen. You know, it was all like one big room. And it wasn't that big, but it was like, you know, there was a large table and then just a bunch of chairs. And there was a rocking chair. And then there was like the sink and the uh, oven and the refrigerator. Um, but that used to be my favorite time was when they would have, sometimes it was a holiday, sometimes it was a birthday. But like everybody would be there. There would be like everybody, every relative would be there. And I'm Greek on this is on my on the Greek side of my family. Uh, and I love like all the other kids, my older brother, my cousins, they'd be in the other room doing stuff. I love being there and I love just hearing. I mean, this was little. I mean, I'm like five to mm-hmm. five to 12, you know, like there. And I just couldn't wait to hear them talk. And they didn't mm-hmm. and they didn't. It was almost like a like a documentary film or uh, when, when after a while, they just don't care or a reality TV show. They just don't care uh-huh. that the camera's on. Like after a while, they're like, we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about. You know, yeah. and even sometimes they would talk in Greek. So maybe like the real bad stuff. They didn't, and I'd say, what do you mean? They're like, <laughs> learn the language if you take, go to Greek school. But I love to hear those stories. And it was just, and everybody was so good. So like when people were like, who are your influences? It was like just the family. Like everybody was yeah. really, really good. And they would tell a lot of the same stories. It's almost like a jukebox. You get to listen. Um, and then like working at that restaurant, just like it wasn't just Susie. It was like the owner. Like I, I used to just love to, I, it was a lot of observing um, and, and, you know, the cooks that were, that worked there and just listening to them. Then in, when, when I moved to New York, it was like Virgil's barbecue. Like I listened to people because, you know, I, I literally would have the composition book I'd get there or I'd always get there early. Like, you know, you know, we got to do kitchen prep or whatever it is, you know, uh, duties. I would get there like a half hour earlier all the time because I like to just get my stuff done. And then I just sit there and I listen and I jot notes down, see what, you know, Uh if someone went to a movie or something like I wanted to know. Uh, and then when I, I became an NBC page, it was the same thing where I would literally, I had being an NBC pages one year and I would literally, walk up to anybody 
and just say, you know, dining, uh, like the head of the commissary, talking about like janitors, that, like, what do you do here? Like, oh, I'm the, I'm the I'm, uh, you know, I'm the custodian. Like, you know, and where do you, and they would show me and, and, it, and it just kept increasing where I'd walk up to vice presidents and I'd just say, you know, these are not creative <laughs> people. I wasn't walking up to Warren Michaels and stuff, right, but I was walking right. up to like vice presidents and just saying like, can I just sit and talk to you? Like, what do you do? Like, everybody wanted to tell me and I got, I took a lot in, I took a lot in. And I got very, very good at observing uh, people and how they treated other people as well. And, yeah. you know, just with that, the background I've, I've, I've received, and it, it translates into the stories and stuff like that, where it wasn't always the vice presidents that meant something. Right. So one of the reasons I'm so fascinated about this is because, you know, if we, if somebody was listening to just the words that you're saying, they might think they were hearing the origin story of a journalist, mm-hmm. right? Somebody who early on develops a practice of sitting quietly and listening, realizing that if you spend time with people, they'll reveal things, they'll reveal themselves, they'll tell stories, um, and that you can find out all these surprising and delightful things. But what's fascinating to me here is that you are a master of this medium that I think, you know, shallow people, uh, people who are inclined to dismiss it, often think of as like narcissistic, right? People talk about like comedians and storytellers as like, oh, you just want attention, you, you know, you, you just want people to pay attention to you. But, and obviously neither of us would agree with that. I don't think we have to address that concern. But what's interesting to me is your mastery of this craft seems to be informed as much by paying attention to other people who are generally overlooked as it is to mining your own experience. So how did these conversations that you were having or this listening that you were doing with other people start to inform your telling of your own stories? How do you connect those things? I think a lot of it has to do, you know, with, with the empathy and compassion that many people showed me. And I think mm. it really, it, it started in Keene uh, and it really, really exploded in, in New York where, I mean, some of the people I've discussed, uh, I mean, there was a guy at Keene, I did not mention Isaac, who I've recently become Facebook friends with. Isaac worked at the gas station and uh, on Mondays, I would uh, have my radio show um, 10 to 12. I'd go in the dining hall. The two ladies that make the sandwiches would compliment my show. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a real reason to go to the gas station. But I knew <laughs> that Isaac, um, and he was a college student. He was, he was a couple of years older than me. But I knew he had uh, the radio station on at the gas station, and he was working. Like I was always going on Monday because he would he would give me like three or four compliments like and he, like very I like this I like this this was kind of what was this and I, I like engage with them so it's just like the empathy of of, of you know, and then I talk about him you know I'm going out with, with with Laura how's it going with Laura and you you go back and forth and uh, there was a page talent show and um, Al Roker hosted it. And uh, and and then there was a, a tape. Like nobody came, nobody came. So this is like in like 2000. <laughs> nobody came, but that VHS tapes of that show were going around because a lot of the pages were in it. And I used to work the commissary line at um, 
at NBC for Saturday Night Live. So what happens is they would do, uh, they'd be rehearsing and then they would do their uh, rehearsal show at eight and then at 11.30. So like around 5.30, 6 o'clock, they do dinner. And my job for Saturday Night Live for like a year was when there was an episode, the day of the episode, I was the guy at the door of the commissary by checking names off to make sure no one was sneaking in to get free food. Uh-huh. So you got to see everybody. I mean, you saw every cast member. You saw this or that. Um, and there was a writer um, that that came over to me one time and he just said his name is Stephen Craig. I, I think he went on to do like Mad TV. But he um, this this was like unbelievable what he did. He, he just said uh, he looked at me. He goes, I, I saw you. I saw you on the video. And I was like, oh, Jesus. And uh, and then like he, he that's all he said. And then he like walked back. I'm like, so what'd you think? What'd you think? Like you know, you're desperate. And uh, of course, yeah. He's like, uh, yeah, no. He goes, it was it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And, and then like he walked away. And, and I said, you know, can I can I meet with you? Can I? And he goes, sure. So here I am. I, I I'm gonna get this meeting with a Saturday Night Live writer. I'm I'm 24 years old, 23 years old. Like this is gonna be. I think 24. And I met with him. And literally, I had a bag, Sam, of like uh, VHS tapes of of my uh, other stuff. I had scripts. I had written a screenplay. I had all these things. And it was in like a a grocery store bag, like like a plastic (laughs) grocery store bag. So like he met with me and he sat me down and like this was it. And and he looked at at it. He goes, what is that? He goes, is that your lunch? I go, no, that's all all my great stuff. Uh And he's like, I go, you want me to take it out? He goes, no, leave it there. And then he said... uh, why do you want to get into this? Like, why do you want to be famous? Is that what you want? And I said to him, and I go, because he was like, I got like five minutes to talk to you. So I want to start with right. that question. I said, no, like I want to like actually create like really good things and, 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 and things that are from my heart. That's what I want to create. I ended up talking to him not for five minutes, for about like an hour, hour and a half. And he was just really nice. And he said, I want to just give you one bit of advice. If you ever meet with like another writer or whatever, get some type of like, you know, folder or something to put your stuff in. Like, don't do that. And I'm like, oh, no okay, thank you. Bags. Yeah, thank you. He's like, and, and then he walked me to the elevator. So I'm on like the 17th floor. You got like more, we got everybody walking, Marcy Klein walking by. Yeah. Um, Calvin Klein's daughter. And, and, and so we're at the elevator and then he just looks at me, he goes, you know, good luck with everything. And I was just like, thanks, thanks, thanks for doing this. Like, I, I appreciate you taking the time. And he said, uh, one thing, Adam, uh, don't take my advice. He's like, he's like, be you and, and, and use the bag. And it was just like a nice, like that, like that was, huh. so I, I, I had that experience. That's an amazing story because it seems like at the beginning of the conversation, I mean, I don't, I don't know him, obviously, but that he's having this impulse to say, here's how I would do it. I would not show up to this conversation with a person like me with my screenplays and VHS tapes in a grocery bag. But then you end up spending more time with him talking about wanting to create from the heart. And somewhere along the way, he picks up that the authentic version of you is is the person who shows up with, with the grocery bag. And it makes me think of, and tell me if it's fair to, to make this connection, you also around this time had a very pivotal conversation with Colin Quinn, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yep. Can, you, can you describe that interaction? 
Yeah, I mean, after I was a page, Colin Quinn had a show at um, Comedy Central, Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn, and I got I fortunately got a job. So I, I was a PA. I was making like a hundred a day, driving vans, picking up uh, props and Collins dry cleaning, you name it. Uh-huh. And one day Seinfeld came to the office. This is like about a year into the show. Seinfeld comes into the office. He eats with everybody, talks to everybody. And the next day, Colin was just, because Colin was like a good guy. He talked to everybody. And we're in like this big meeting room, uh, conference room. And he's just going around saying like, what's your Seinfeld story? What's your Seinfeld story? He goes, Wade, what's your Seinfeld story? I go, I didn't get to see Seinfeld. I was picking up your underwear. <laughs> and he goes, what? I go, yeah, I didn't get to see him. I was picking up your underwear. And he felt bad. He felt bad. He, he like legitimately, and, and I just, you know, and then he, we, we got into something else. So like the next day he came up to me, he goes, Wade, I go, what, what's up? And he goes, he goes, I'm mad at you. I go, yeah, well, I'm kind of mad at you too. I miss Seinfeld. <laughs> and he goes, no, he goes, um, I was talking to your boss, Jessica. Like, I didn't know you're doing stand up because I'd been doing, you know, I've been doing the guitar comedy around uh-huh. and, um, you know, for me, I was really struggling with it, Sam, uh, at that time because uh, crowds and talent, uh, the, the crowds were tougher and uh, the talent yeah. was a lot better in, in, in New York than, than in yeah. Keene. So I, I was right. just struggling. Didn't really know what to do. Trying to do heartfelt stuff. It's not really working. So then I'm yeah. kind of trying Especially to do Especially not characters. in New York in the early 90s is not... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, surf reality, like doing, you know, I mean, I went on, I was telling a class, I went on at surf reality on Houston Street in like 99. And I followed, it was like two o'clock in the morning, I followed like a woman that was like in a like snowsuit that like took all her clothes off while while eating a peach. And then she put the peach pit somewhere, I'm not going to say. And then I, I, Adam Wade followed that. So I mean, it's like, what the, what the hell am I doing here? What am I doing? Here's a sincere experience from my life in New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, you know, so when Colin, this was about four or five years later. So I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I mean, and I'm doing like some shows. I mean, like Caroline Bringer shows. And so Colin said, he's like, I'm mad at you. Like, I, I want to, he goes, I want to see a video. He's like, bring it in and I'll go over it with you. And I was like, wow. Oh my so God. So like that night, it, it's crazy. I had uh, two VHSs. Uh, uh, VCRs and I had all my tapes from like, you know, a comedy seller bringer from a Caroline bringer. I made like a, probably like a 10 minute video of all the best stuff. And okay. I brought it in and, and, and Colin, uh, it was like the nicest thing. He, he, we sat down and we watched the whole thing. For all you 10 watched minutes it of it together, together. And, and, and then we oh had about an God. hour. Con- we had about probably like a 40 minute conversation after that. I mean, he spent, he spent a lot of time with me. So That's I, amazing. I, yeah, it wasn't like, all right, well, I watched it or let's watch two minutes of it and I'll talk to you like you. And he just like, part of the conversation went back and forth. But like, basically what he said, he's like, Adam, he's like, you're not like, how long have you been playing the guitar? And I'm like, you know, like six, seven years. He's like, you're awful. Like, you're not good at the <laughs> guitar. And I go, okay. He goes, why are you singing? Like, you know, he goes, I mean, he goes, I have a terrible voice. Like, your voice is like worse. Like, you know, and we're like going back and forth. You know, it's like kidding and nice, but like, you know, um, and then he just said, he goes, Adam, like, think about this. Like, think about the stories in between the songs. He's like, because, you know, I'd set it up and then I'd play the song. He goes, that's, that's like you. That's like you around the office. Like, you can like listen to the, how the audience appreciates you. Like, why don't you just focus on that? Like, mm. like, get rid of the guitar. 
Mm-hmm. And it was the best advice. It was the turning point of my years as a performer in New York because I got rid of the guitar. Um, and it was very difficult. And, and, you know, for me, it took about two to three years after that to kind of figure out that I can be, you know, what he said, like, be yourself on stage, be yourself, like, around the office. Like, even without the guitar, that was my shield. So, like, my, you know, it was just real. I was very Gilbert Godfrey-esque. Hey, how you doing? Hey. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It was fortunately with the moth. I mean, I found, within a year of him telling me that, I found this thing called the moth where they had story slams. And at the time, it was pretty much once a month, maybe twice a month. And you could put your name in the hat. And it wasn't what it is now. And in doing that, the people that were there, especially early on in the moth, and I want to be clear, mm-hmm. like the same people went, I'd say like 60 to 70% of the audience went right. to every slam. Yeah. So yeah. they knew you. And that community was there at the moth when I started, and, and it, it was wonderful. Yeah. It, was, it was just a, it, was, it was everything. It was everything that I that I that I could hope for. You know, when I talk about my family, I started to feel like that around them. So it's very interesting. I don't know if you thought about it consciously this way at the time, but in a way, the Quinn interaction is kind of the second beat of like first you have this writer say like you know what go with the grocery bag, and then because that's you. And then you have this conversation with Colin Quinn where he says, lose the guitar. Just to resonate with that, I mean, one of my earliest memories of The Moth is the first time I told a story there, I had had a similar experience where I had been doing comedy and it was going kind of whatever. And then my friend who I was doing comedy with, he and I started doing these more confessional, I guess we called them sketches, but they were basically mutual storytelling uh, one-act plays like in the middle of our shows. And the response to those from the audience was so much more significant. And so when he and I stopped working together, I was like, okay, I've heard about this moth thing. Let me go do, let me go try doing something similar to those quote-unquote sketches in this environment. And I remember the first time I did it, the first night I went, I got picked and I did a story and I'm standing in the crowd, and it didn't win or anything, but then I'm standing in the crowd afterwards, and all of a sudden I see Jen Hickson's head, like, weaving through the crowd, and she comes up to me and she goes, hey, that was really good. And the power of an experience like that is, I mean, I'm feeling emotional just Yeah, you can't can't underestimate it, Sam, you can't. There's something about it to me that also shows up in your craft, like in the way that you tell stories, which is so often in your stories when there's another character, you see them so completely. Just before we were going to talk today, I was, I was listening to another Saturday night at the Clam King. Yeah. Um, classic, classic Adam Wade story. And one of my favorite things about that story is you're there with your grandmother and your great aunt and you're talking about them in these very sweet ways and how much they appreciated you and how much they thought you were special and spectacular even when nobody else in your life treated you that way. But you also talk about how ridiculous they were. You know, like one of them's had cancer three times and she's still smoking cigarettes. They want you to like drive through the cemetery <laughs> to like park next to the gravestones. They they're always want you to watch the same episode of TV over and over and over again. It's, you don't, you don't shy away. It, it's a it's a complete picture 
I think that's the piece I'm wondering. Is is that what comes out of this practice that you cultivated of of like close listening? Yeah, and, and when you're when you're trying to find characteristics to give people that you love, you you want to you want to be true. You know, I I think and, and that like you have you can't just paint them paint them one way. You you got to paint them. You know, and um, it, there was. I, I got to perform this. Um, I got to perform this story with the Moth uh, main stage. We performed it in Portsmouth, in uh, New Hampshire. So a lot of my relatives came, and, and you know, Yanariti had both had been passed, and uh, one relative had been going through a lot. So I, I just, you know, she'd been going through a lot, and she came over to me after, and she just said, like, I don't like the way you described your yaya's hands. You know, because my, my aunt, my yaya, who's my grandmother, um, worked in the shoe factories for about 50 years putting shoes together on the main line. She was manual labor. She put shoes together. And she worked so hard and she never wore gloves that, like, even after her hands, they, they look like the skins of potatoes. And she, did, she didn't like me mentioning that. You know, she was really bothered by it. Hmm. Now, you can listen to the story, you know, Google the Clam King Adam Wade. That, like, you know, it, it's one of these things where that's what she got out of the story. You know what I mean? So, I, I mean, yeah. like, so, like, that's not what, what the story like, is about. <laughs> yeah, that's not what the story is about. So, it's like she, she missed the point. She missed the point. And that's going to happen. That, that, that's going to happen. Um, but sometimes people are going to focus on that type of thing. But, like, yeah. you, you know, you, you, you don't want to make every character that, that, that you and yourself perfect. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I learned that from the moth, too. I mean, we, I worked on that story with Sarah, Sarah Janess and Catherine Burns. We couldn't figure out what the story was about. And then there's a conversation in the car where I'm kind of mean to them. I'm a high school kid, right. you know, with them. And I say something that 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 really uh, hurt them. You know, I never wanted to include that in the story. I never wanted to. And the story is about regret. The story is about mm-hmm. regret, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and stories about regret and also unconditional love. Yeah. And, you you know, once we got to the conversation and I finally told them what I said, and I said, like, I don't, I'm on stage. Like, I have control over my character of, of who I am. Right. If I, if I say, like, I'm a loser because I'm with you two on a Saturday night, that's going to make me look like a real jerk. You know, and my mother might hear this because that's my mother's aunt and my mother's grand, my mother's mother. And like they said, no, like Adam, like you're human. Like, like, and, and if you, if we're looking at the story and you're saying that we're trying to figure out what it's about and it's about this regret that you, the way you talk. And then it's also about their reaction, how they, even after being a jerk to them, they showed you unconditional love and you're reflecting on it. So it's, yeah. you know, yeah. You know, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So so it sounds like yes, you had cultivated this sense of of empathy for people through the your own natural practices and behaviors, but then it it took a push from them if I'm hearing you right to say you have to include the rough edges of yourself and also have empathy for that version of yeah, yourself. Yeah, and, and that, and I give them a lot of credit for that because that that was a game changer for me. It was, it was a game changer for me. You gotta you gotta kind of look at it all. You gotta kind of yeah. look at it all. You know, you right, gotta look right. at it all. Yeah. So I want to ask you about another revelation I heard you describe about doing this kind of work, which is you said once that 
you told a story, and as you described it, which I thought was funny, it was like one of your classic, quote, feel sorry for Adam stories. <laughs> um, the genre. And, yep, yep. But, but that you, after the show, were at the bar, and this guy came up to you, and he looked like a kind of a meathead. And you were worried he was going to hit you, but instead he says... You know, you think that you're the only one who was feeling insecure back then. That's how I felt every day of my of my life. And and you said this really insightful thing in in response to that, which is that you said you thought you before that moment you thought you maybe had 45 percent of the audience on your side by telling these you know being vulnerable, but that actually this interaction meant that you probably had closer to 95 percent. I want to poke at that a little bit because it's really fascinating when that happened when that interaction happened were you still not totally confident that being vulnerable on the st- on stage was going to be a source of connection with people what where did you get that 45 percent number from yeah well you know you're performing at a place like the moth you're performing like a, a storytelling show Ah, yes. You're going to get nerds. You're going to get like nerdy people. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get people that have probably, I mean, I, I don't think I'm saying anything that's not true. Probably that a, a decent amount, 45% of the audience, maybe a little less, um, have been bullied before, in, yeah. in some shape or form, at least. Ten, so, tender yeah. hearts, tender hearts. Tender hearts. <laughs> so you're, you're going to, and, and I think with, with, with a, with a story like mine, you'll, you'll be able to connect to them and, uh, you're not going to get to connect to the bullies, though. I don't think you'd get to, con- you know, or or just like the jocks. You know, there's a thing, um, Robert Redford, um, some people might have to Google him. Uh, Robert Redford, uh, and uh, you might have, some people might just have to be doing a lot of surfing the web for this one. But when he auditioned for Mike Nichols, the uh, graduate, um, which later the part went to Dustin Hoffman, you know, Robert Redford was, in that time, a very, very attractive guy. He was a very, very attractive guy. And one of the questions they asked is, like, you know, how would you react when a girl uh, would turn you down? And, and Robert Redford was like, what? Uh... But is that the life you want? Like, I mean, hey, I, I've, I've been broken. I've been dumped. You know, this or that. And it hurts. Like, everybody, I'm human. But like, I want to have feeling. Like, what if I didn't have? Like, you got to have those yeah. experiences. You have to have some type of rejection. You know, right. do I want to get rejected every day by everything? No. But like, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've been around. I've been around New York City for twenty five years here, and, and I'm and I'm still still plugging away. You know, yeah. listen to the uh-huh. audible, swinging the bat. But like, you know, <laughs> I'm doing it. So let me ask you though, what you're talking about is finding a kind of strength through this work, through the connection that can come from this kind of work. When you were a kid and you were having a lot of these experiences that now inform many of the stories that you've told, did you think you were going to be okay? I, I really did. It would take the rejection to push myself to be like, you're going to be okay. And, mm-hmm. and then also, I think through experiences as the years, like, you know, I, I, I had a part-time job like one year in here at um, Associated Press at uh, 50 Rockefeller Center. I was working like the, it was like the 3 a.m. to 1 p.m. shift. And then I was doing that like three or four days a week. And then I was working at Virgil's. 
barbecue mm-hmm. as, a, as a waiter. So I was working like two jobs on two different time time zones. I didn't know what that, I didn't know if I was coming or going, like fig- figuratively and literally. I'm, I'm dropping off resumes to try to get into the NBC page program um, every other Monday. And I'm doing this and like I'm in New York, I'm doing it. I'm sleeping like three hours a day. And my goal was just to get my feet on the floor and, and not sit. My dad taught me that because he was in the, he's like, don't like, don't, whatever you do, when you get up, don't sit. Cause then you're going to fall. Like it was, it was like the craziest thing I ever went through. I never thought I was going to get through it. I'm, I'm sitting on a bench in front of Virgil's after a shift. I had dropped a lot of stuff. I had two strikes, one more strike, you're out. And I mean, I was just, I was, I was just waiting for them to fire me, which they never did. Larry Masidi, that's a shout out to the general manager. He was a good guy. Never, never fired me. And I'm, I'm sitting outside. Pat, Lennon, his name was, who was a bartender and a former waiter there. He was one of the waiters that trained me. Him and I are sitting on a little bench outside of Virgil's Barbecue next to Jimmy's Corner on 44th Street, where Good Morning America tapes. Uh-huh. And he looks at me and I look like, he's like, Adam, he goes, it's time to get rid of that other job. I, I'm like, yeah, but it's, you know, I mean, I'm trying to build my resume. He's like, it's time to get rid of that other job. And I go, I'm scared, Pat, I'm scared. And he goes, looks at me and he's like, Pat, he, he puts his hand on my like shoulder and almost like hugs me. He's just a really, really good guy. He was probably like in his mid forties at the time. And he said, he goes, Wade, you're going to be all right. Hmm. Taking, taking the pa- uh, taking the uh, bus that night from Port Authority, okay, to Fairview, New Jersey, where I lived in a basement apartment at the uh-huh. bottom of a hill next to a cemetery. And I'm taking that bus and I'm crying. And all I can think of is what he said. I'm going to be yeah. all right. So many times in my life, I go back to that moment. That was, that was a, you know, and I've had, I've had, you know, ups and downs. That was one of the downs because I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing. And I, I almost, I like, couldn't think straight. And I, I hear his voice, that guy's voice. I feel like this is a Beatles song. You're going to be all right. But do you have a sense of where you got that from earlier in life? Because one of the other really amazing moments in, in your storytelling that I, I think about a lot is one of my favorite, favorite Adam Wade stories is you talk about the night that you and Fetus and your other friend, uh, your third friend who has the car, I'm forgetting his name in this yeah, moment. B-Land, b You... It's the pink wine cooler story. And, yep. you know, you guys are out, you're driving around, you decide, you know what, we're going to go to this party that um, you're, you think, you know, your friend is going to be cool with you showing up at. She kicks you guys out of the party, you end up stealing the wine coolers, you throw them off the bridge, and instead you go back to the Chinese food restaurant that you guys always go to, and you're sitting there, and instead of just getting egg rolls, you get the poo-poo platter, and it's this You've, you've saved the night, and it's this moment of great triumph, and you're like, you know what? I'm never going to be one of these guys who goes into the parties, but I've got these guys. And that's where the less talented storyteller ends that story. But what you do is you talk about how you look out the window up at this mountain, which you always used to look sit the, in the, on these Friday nights. You would always sit and look at the mountain and be happy that you were there. But on this night, you say, you look at the mountain and you start thinking about what's on the other side. And th- that's a fascinating moment to me. And I want to ask you a little bit about what's behind it because the the alternate 
or maybe less evolved version of that story is that you is that the takeaway is I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm just going to stay here with these people and have and not try to get so far outside of who I am. But that's not your takeaway from it. So tell tell me about that ending. That night was extremely significant to my life um, in the sense it could have been something very negative too. And it's just like we're walking out of here and uh, I just had enough. I just had enough. And uh, for me that night, I knew I wanted to get out. Mm. I wanted to get out, you know, and that, that was like the first, you know, and, and, and I was gonna, you know, and I was, I was gonna, it's not like I'm destined for bigger things, but like, I'm going to do whatever I can to get out of here. Like what, what is, Uh what, is here specifically for me, you know, and, yeah. and, and like, I, I want to see what's on the other side of the mountain. Yeah. If I can do this, what else can I do? Yeah. 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 And it was like that, that, that's, that seems almost like the birth of birth of confidence beyond the love of like a family can give, you know? Yeah. I, I love that scene. And, and the other thing that I'm realizing in this, in this moment, as you're describing it is the other thing that's on top of that mountain that you used to look at is a radio antenna. Yep. yep. And that mm-hmm. that's what takes you to to where yeah. we sort of began our conversation. Yeah. Well, Adam, I've I've taken up so much of your time and and, and I don't want to overstay my welcome, but um I wonder if I could ask you as as kind of a last note to end on um do you have a mantra? You know, we started out talking about a practice that you keep to keep your your creative flame glowing um do you have a a mantra for yourself any little saying that um maybe when the going gets tough in your writing that you try to remind yourself of you're adam fucking wade you're adam fucking wade <laughs> nah yeah probably probably yeah yeah Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Adam Wade, one of my storytelling heroes, for being on the show today. As I mentioned, you can find Adam's Audible original, You Ought to Know Adam Wade, on Audible. And you can also find his comedy album, Adam Wade, The Human Comedy, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And of course, you can go on YouTube and find the stories that he has told at The Moth, which you heard us reference a couple of them in the interview. It is a soulful experience listening to this man tell stories. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins, 
And if you have thoughts on anything that you have heard ever on The Midnight Disease, today or otherwise, please drop me a line. Midnight at WALT.FM is the email address. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. We'll be back with another great conversation next week. And until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.